Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we look at the latest tactical and strategic updates from the ground, and I ask my guests whether Joe Biden's gaffes over Ukraine are derailing the West's response. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in faith. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's day 33, and today I'm joined by Dominic Nichols, the Telegraph's defence and security editor, Olivia Utley, assistant comment editor, and Francis Durnley, also assistant comment editor. Dominic Nichols, what happened over the weekend? Can you give us uh, the latest update? Yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. It's been, in the words of the uh, British MOD's Defence Intelligence, uh, a very quiet few days. I mean, you you could have read that from uh, from a week or so ago. But uh, continued pressure, extreme pressure in Mariupol uh, to the south. Um, Pressure also in the area of the Donbass. We'll talk about that a bit later, I'm sure. uh, And Kharkiv to the north. However, not a a huge amount around... um, around the capital, uh, Kiev, in the direct, in the north. In fact, there's been some uh, indication that, that Russian forces have been have been not withdrawing, but doing what's called a relief in place. So moving moving some of the units that are exhausted out of that um, out of that area to be replaced by other fresher troops. We've mentioned before that those fresher troops are probably going to be uh, lower of lower training level, possibly conscript troops. Um, but uh, it, it's noteworthy they they need to sort of replace and start sort of bringing in uh, fresh troops and what they thought was going to be a very quick assault. Um, notable also that they seem to be. They seem to be withdrawing back through the area around Chernobyl, which is quite a smart tactical move, you've got to say, because it's extremely unlikely that, um, that, that Ukrainian forces would want to try and chase them into there or have any kind of extreme um, you know, kinetic military effect against them in there for fear of um, uh, blowing up all the, all the dust on the ground. We saw when in the first few hours of the war, first few days, when they came down through Chernobyl, there was a spike in radiation. That's not because anything leaked out it was just the dust and earth and 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 um everything being chucked up from the ground because the extra footfall so a rather smart um smart move there by russia uh and um just in the west a rocket fire into lviv the um 
the the, the, the town near the Polish border, which saw um, a fuel depot and an artillery repair factory um, hit by Russia. But but generally, fairly quiet overall. There's another couple of points to pick out, but I'll pause there. Thanks, Dom. There was something that took my eye in the paper today, that a Russian tank battalion that made its name at Stalingrad has, has been destroyed. Do you want to speak a bit about that? Yeah, Russia's 4th Guards uh, tank army, um, tank division, sorry, it, it was uh, badly mauled. Now, trying to put a, a doctrinal term of defeat or destroy, and I get my all my staff college terminology wrong here, but um, you know, one means to completely wipe it out and the other is to render it combat ineffective but um if the unit's combat ineffective but they three still got three t72 tanks staring at you they can do an awful lot of damage uh but yeah effectively this tank division that can trace its roots back to the to the um siege of stalingrad in the second world war which many see as the turning point in the second world war um was effectively uh, neutralized and, and taken taken off the orbat is no longer a fighting force worthy worthy of the name so um We've seen great success, obviously, by Ukrainian forces in many areas around the country. But this is is it not only relieves the pressure from the area in the east; it was just uh, to the south of, of Kharkiv. Um, but it's a it's a, a totemic force. This, uh, as I say, Stalingrad holds a, a special place in the hearts of the Russian military. So to lose such a significant uh, division there will will really resonate with them. Thanks very much, Dominic Nichols. Um, Francis and Olivia, is there anything else you think we should talk about before moving on to speak about Biden? I mean, off the top of my head, just looking at, well, just looking at my notes, there's Ukrainian polit- uh, politicians accusing refugee ag- agencies of mishandling their response to the humanitarian crisis. And there's, after interviews with Western press, um, Volodymyr Zelensky has accused the West of cowardice and lashed out at the West's ping-pong approach to, to diplomacy. Do either of you want to come in on that and explain a bit about what he means? Yes, uh, thank you, David. Well, I'm happy to talk about um, uh, the very interesting interview that Mr. Zelensky gave, um, or President Zelensky, should I say, um, in in whilst uh, in Kiev. Um, in a sense, it's a uh, repeating the line that he's been making privately, uh, certainly to the British government um, and, and others, that he sees the British support of his country as being. Um, far greater than that offered by others. And in the interview, and I'll quote, he says, um, to be honest, Johnson, that being Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, is a leader who is helping more. The leaders of countries react according to how their constituents act. In this case, Johnson is an example. So obviously they're speaking to the nature of the British defiance. And he continued in this interview in The Economist by saying, Britain is definitely on our side, whilst Germany is making a mistake today as it tries to balance its ties to Moscow. Britain wants Ukraine to win and Russia to lose, but I'm not ready to say whether Britain wants the war to drag on or not. So not completely um, going all in in, in, uh, in support of, uh, of, of, of the Prime Minister and of Britain, obviously ha- holding a little few cards close to his chest. But um, more broadly, he is... Uh, underlining the support that Britain has offered him in contrast to the French and the Germans, clearly in an attempt to pressurise both of those countries into uh, offering more in terms of weaponry. We've spoken before on this podcast about uh, the nature of the German offering, which was initially only 5,000 helmets, which now seem uh, an almost insulting um, 
uh, uh, offer uh, to the Ukrainian people. Um, And I think all of this aligns with what we saw in a poll only a couple of weeks ago, that the Ukrainian people um, of all of the European countries see um, the British support as being um, the greatest of all of the European countries um, that have offered support. So this will be pleasing reading for number 10 Downing Street um, in terms of uh, the support that they have offered to the Ukrainian people. And it also goes without saying that uh, almost all military analysis think that were it not for the training that British uh, soldiers um, offered the Ukrainian army in the weeks and months and years prior to the invasion, that it is unlikely that the Ukrainians would have been able to resist as effectively as they have. So I think, you know, we we are by nature as journalists uh, always looking to be critiquing governments um, and rightly, rightly so. But this is one of those opportunities where it's actually we can celebrate something that a government has done and has effectively seems to have neutralised much of the Russian threat. And, and that, there's something to... to uh, to be said for that in these these challenging times. I think it's worth a word too about what is going on in Germany um, because Schultz has obviously become very uh, hawkish on Russia in, in recent weeks. He's cancelled the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is, which is huge, really, um, and is now kind of making all the right noises. It, it's a bit late, but he's, he's getting the right tack. But, um, and Francis touched on this too, it's... it's it's not going to be easy for him. Um, he's now, you know, Zelensky's probably going to have kinder words to say about Schultz in the weeks ahead. Now he's rowing back on all of this pro-Russia uh, strategy, which Merkel had in place. But there's a large part of Schultz's party, the SPD party, which has had cosy links with with Russia for, for many, many years. And I think the idea that Schultz will just be able to sort of turn this ship um, immediately is is a little bit naive. And it's already clear that he's a bit nervous about what the rest of his government and, and party think of his of his now very hawkish take on Russia, because he's not even telling them what he's doing before before he does it. So, you know, it feels it feels as though Germany is headed in the right direction now. But I'm not sure if it'll be that simple for Schultz. I think he is going to face a little bit of a backlash in some way from from his party who who won't want to um, cut these very, very useful links um, with the Kremlin that abruptly. If I could just jump in there and say that I had a very interesting interview with Dr. Thomas Clausen in the Friday episode of this podcast, who touched a lot on what Olivia was just saying. Um, and his central or one of the central points that he was making is that there is actually a, a big discrepancy between the way that the German population and people think about Russia, aka with a lot of scepticism um, and and frustration, um, and the way in which the political elites in Russia, uh, in Germany, sorry, uh, think about Russia. And um, this is going to be one of the big hurdles that Olaf Scholz is going to have to overcome. Um, but it's obviously always a, a problem when you have uh, the, a uh, discrepancy between the way the, the political class and the the ordinary people uh, uh, think towards the country. I mean, I I would I was very struck by a poll that was done um, only a few weeks ago asking for the British public's view on Vladimir Putin, and as you can imagine, um, they had very very strong views on the matter. But our, my theory, pet theory would be that if you'd asked that same question about the British public's opinion of, of, of Vladimir Putin, they would have said the exact same critiques um, five, 10, 20 years ago. And yet, you know, the West's response towards Russia has not been as strong as perhaps the British public and other pop, um, um, European populations would have liked to have seen. And this is the consequence of that. Um, so, that, you know, once again, unfortunately, countries have been let down by their political elites on this issue. And um, and hopefully this should be the, the, the lesson that things need to 
change. But am I optimistic? Not necessarily. Um, as I say, to Olivia's point, already we've seen a little bit of backtracking from the German um, government about the the scale of 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 of, uh, of their rearmament and, and other things. And so the pressure must be kept up if, if from the populations of these countries if they continue, wish to see the, see their governments um, uh, to, to to continue the, the the pressure on Russia. Thanks, Francis. Thanks, Olivia. Um, Dom, very quickly, would you give us a bit of a preview? I, I note that you're writing some analysis for the Telegraph newspaper on um, some weapon systems, remote mining systems, and you're asking the question about how how we can put um, the West's rhetoric into practice. You know, if you were going to send tanks to, to Ukraine, how exactly do you do that? Would you, would you give us a bit of a preview about your thoughts and what you're writing? Yeah, so this is looking at what additional support can be sent. Um, President Zelensky has asked for tanks and planes and, and suggested that NATO... Uh, could supply one percent uh, of the tanks, and that'd be a that'd be a great uh, a great addition. And I mean, it would in terms of in terms of numbers. But of course, there's more to having something, or more to being able to use something than than just having it. I mean, many many of us listening to this can can drive a car. But if I presented you with a Formula One race car and said, "Can you take take my granny to Glasgow?" and you said, "Well, no, of course not," I say, "Well, why not? You know, you can drive, funny." This is a similar thing. I mean, Ukraine uses. Um, Soviet or former Soviet uh, Russian tanks, mainly T seventy two, and uh, and so the, just just the thought of suggesting old tanks or British uh, British uh, Challengers and and Leopards and the Clerks and maybe even M one Abrams, although they're extremely thirsty and the price of gas is going up, but you know it's just not it's just not credible to say let's send these tanks over there because having them is one thing, being able to operate them is something else, being able to support them, have the natives of ammunition, etc. etc. But it is. I mean, it is worth having the conversation. There are a lot of T-72s still around uh, in NATO, uh, in former Warsaw Pact countries, uh, many of them in storage, but then they're, they're kept in storage so that they can be used at some point in the future. They should be, uh, just as the British Army keeps a load of load of old kit in uh, Luggershall in, in the eastern end of Salisbury Plain. I mean, these tanks are there, especially sort of temperature controlled and humidity controlled um, warehouses, so they can be they can be used. And Poland has 300 um Czech Republic 100, Hungary about 40, Slovakia about 30 T-72s. They could, there could be some deal done over them. Um, we saw with the Rentamig affair that that a, a country going out on a limb and offering heavy metal is quite a political act. Well, I mean, it's all, it's all a political act, clearly, but there's, some, there's a, a difference between sending helmets and ammunition to sending MiG fighters and tanks. And so some of these countries might feel a little bit out on the limb would want some political cover for that, might even want something in, in return, um, some uh, kit, but other other tanks or another nature. There was a suggestion that the, the MiG-29s from Poland might have been backfilled by F-16s, for example. So there's there's um, deals that can be done there, but um, it, it's not just as simple as saying, they've got this kit over there, let's get it into Ukraine. There's a training bill, as I've described. There's also... Well, how how do you do that? How do you get the stuff there? If you put tanks on a low loader on a vehicle that can that can carry the immense weight of a tank or a train, for example, and get it into um, into Ukraine, do you then does the driver hop out and the Ukrainian driver jump in because it's then a legitimate target, um, or are you legitimising? Are you spreading the nature of the war by having these 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 things prepared outside of Ukraine? or taking Ukrainian soldiers out of the country to train them on the next series of air defense weapons that you're going to supply. So, so as, the, as, the, as the nature of the ask gets bigger, so too 
to the political ramifications um, of any country's offering. Uh, and so it, it's, it's, we're at the point now where the fight is moving towards the bigger natures of, of equipment and, um, for example, seeking to go after the long-range Russian artillery, um, the, the kind of stuff that's going to interdict that, going to attack that, is not you're moving away from the very simple to use, simple to operate kit. And that then brings a whole heap of questions about who does it, where do you do it, what kind of numbers, uh, are they doing it on their own? Are they doing it under the under the banner of NATO? And if they do so under the banner of NATO, is that is, is that too much, too escalatory? Um, so a whole he- heap of questions around what might be a relatively straightforward ask of, can I have your spare tanks? Thank you very much, Dom. I thought that was um, incredibly insightful and gives us a sense of the, the scale of the challenge, logistical and political, that awaits uh, countries and leaders who offer their support. So turning to... Um, I think our main question for this space, um, I want to talk a bit about Joe Biden. He's been visiting Europe and he made quite a large gaffe. Uh, the fallout is dominating um, our, our headlines. Our front page today was on it. Um, Olivia Utley, would you tell us what he said and what, what, what happened? What was the initial reaction? So he was making quite a good speech generally in, in Warsaw. And then he said this line... Um, right at the end, which was clearly off script. He said, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. Um, Talking about Putin, obviously that is not the general Western line that we're in this war to to get Putin out. And in fact, there's 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 no way that that, that the West can possibly, um, you know, oust Putin from from his position as the president of of Russia. And then Biden's White House representatives um, immediately corrected the president and said he didn't mean out of power in Moscow, he meant out of power in Ukraine. Um, but, but clearly, Putin, who, who is always looking for, for reasons, to, to, for excuses to up the attack, um, will take that as, as, as confirmation of his paranoid theory that the West is trying to, is trying to get rid of him. So it was a really sort of stupid and quite dangerous thing for Biden to say. If I could just jump in there, I think it's something that, that just to Olivia's point, that this now... It does feed into a narrative, unfortunately, in within Russia that uh, America's objective all along has been to uh, not only overthrow Putin, but to actually destabilize and um, and and sort of divide Russia from within. So that I think is why this is 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 can be described as as a gaffe. I mean, when you've got your own team after you've said something, having to immediately clarify your remarks, um, this does not is not a show of strength that you would hope to have um, a president. Um, uh, doing. Um, but I, I do think that actually it speaks to, in, in defence of, of President Biden, it does speak to uh, the challenge moving forward um, in terms of handling the Ukraine crisis, which is effectively, do we, or when I say we as the West, do we really say that we are willing once the Ukraine crisis is over, um, to continue to deal with Vladimir Putin, who has already been described as a war criminal by the international community? Are we really saying that as part of some future peace deal that we would be willing to um, ease sanctions on Russia under Putin's leadership? I mean, these are very challenging um, questions to be asking, but they are relevant to this because if the answer is no, then we should be sending a very clear signal to the Russian people and to the Russian oligarchs and the kleptocracy that, Pu- that Putin cannot remain in power and your country 
um, not be a pariah state. Um, and that those and, and that will send a very clear message to them. But as I say, the challenge is that, that, that does that play more into Putin's hands or does that play more into those who wish to challenge Putin or to the Russian people? That is a very open question. But I think it's very, very relevant to this and it will become increasingly relevant in the weeks ahead. Yeah, I think what Biden has a sort of knack for doing is saying what everyone else is sort of thinking. And of course, we are kind of thinking to ourselves over here, how on earth can, after all this, how on earth can the West go back to, you know, business as usual with Russia if if Russia is still operating under Putin? And I think it's true that, that if you read Biden's words as a sort of, that he was speaking to the Russian people sort of over the heads of the president saying, you know, we've, you've got to get rid of this man, then there is a sort of defence of it. But, but, but it is kind of hard to defend because we as the West, can't you know we don't have any control over 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 russian democracy we don't you know who who gets into power in russia isn't really our business and we can't really frame the war um to to in in those terms so to sort of pretend that we can probably isn't particularly productive and and could cause you know an awful lot of problems further down the line and you know it's not the first time that that joe biden's done this um he's he he speaks out of turn, and his and his um his White House representatives have have to row back on what he said moments later. Um, relatively often, he said last week even that the US would respond in kind if Russia used chemical we- weapons. Um, and then the White House White House had to clarify what he meant without actually saying what he did mean. So I think he is, you know, it's loose talk and, and it is definitely becoming a little bit dangerous. We published a piece on our desk, uh, I think it was only last week, uh, where somebody called um, called Biden uh, the uh, commentator in chief, which I think is, is perhaps quite a way to des- good way of describing him to, to Olivia's point. There was just one other point I wanted to make on this question of the Russian people and an and update on them. That's obviously been a consistent question that we've asked over the course of the last few weeks um, on this podcast is the extent to which the Russian people uh, will uh, be now looking at Putin in a different way and whether they'll be looking to challenge him, etc. And we've had, of course, many different responses to that question, some being more optimistic and some much more pessimistic. Um, There's been a very interesting piece I just wanted to point people to in Vanity Fair, an interview with the author Mikhail Zygar. And uh, he makes the point, um, which I think just underlines something we've uh, something we've we've said on this podcast before, which is um, in his view, and he actually I think phrases it in a very similar way to, to the way that we did, which is he was asked, "Do I believe that Russia can be transformed into some kind of North Korea?" My answer is yes, and Putin is okay with that. Lenin a hundred years ago called the intelligentsia, the educated class of Russia, the and then he's uh, expletive here, of the nation. And that is exactly the phrase Putin would agree with. So according to his mindset, he is just getting rid of the expletive. So this, again, is speaking to something we were talking about last week, which is that the elites, now perhaps as many as 500,000 young people, educated people, have left the country. And this arguably plays into Putin's hands, because if they've left Um, then they are not going to be there to challenge him and those that remain are going to be less likely to do so. And and as I've said before, if you look at the states where there have been revolutions in the past or or leaders who have been overthrown, then you usually have to have um, coherent blocks of people, classes of people who are there, who are ready to move in 
to any vacuum of power that is um, that is emptied. And unfortunately, when you've got so many people leaving Russia uh, who are perhaps more liberal minded, more westernized, that is not a good sign to a future Russia that is going to be one that cooperates with the rest and, and, and acts in a different way than Vladimir Putin has done. So I know I've made that point several times on this podcast, but I think it's really, really important when thinking uh, long term in, in the context of, of the Russian state. Thank you very much, Francis. You're, yeah, you're dead on, I think. Um, Dom Nichols, you've written quite a lot of analysis on Biden's uh, gaffes. Uh, what, what's your take on it after, after Olivia and Francis? Well, I, I agree with uh, Olivia and Francis, the, the points they've made there. And, and the, I mean, there's a lot of criticism that, that it, it's not a gaffe um, for calling out Putin for what he is. However, I would counter that Actually, it is. If you're the president of the United States, there's there's ways of saying these things and and ways of not doing it, or ways of making the, the situation worse. And I and I think, um, I think he he has possibly made the situation worse. And I, I think if you have to, almost the definition I would suggest of a political gaffe is if your if your team have to come out in the minutes after you said it and start saying, well, no, actually, what he, what he, what he meant was this. Um, I remember markedly when, um, uh, sorry, backtracking a little bit, but. Um, but I remember that uh, George George W. Bush's team complained to Al Jazeera um, after uh, after nine eleven, or in the years after nine eleven, about how much airtime Osama bin Laden was given. And Al Jazeera did you know, crunch the numbers and then went back to them and said, actually, over the last twelve months, uh, George W. Bush has had more airtime. There have been more times we've we've had the camera on him. He's speaking his words. We're listening to his words than Osama bin Laden. Now. What you do with that time you're given as a politician and what comes out of your mouth and what is received by the audiences, plural, that you are addressing, that's up to you. But you can't complain that the that the the um, the media organisation doesn't give you a fair crack of the whip. So I think if you're given airtime and then your your team have to come straight out afterwards and say, no, 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 he, he didn't mean that. He meant this. That is a political gaffe. Um, and the reason I think it's it's serious is because. Putin, to a very great extent, sees himself as the embodiment of the Russian state. He is Russia. He he, he cannot fail because that is Russia failing. NATO has a go at him because NATO has, is having a go at the Russian people in his in his mind. And the reason that's really important is because they've made he and and his um, sort of security establishment have made no bones about the, the fact that they see it would be entirely legitimate and appropriate to use nuclear weapons if there's an existential threat to the state. So if you see, if you take out the word states and put Putin and he sees a threat to his leadership or some kind of call, perhaps saying he needs to be overthrown or he needs to be kicked out or or any, any a, a sort of whiff of the uh, International Criminal Court in, in the background, then I think that takes us into a very, very dangerous place um, regarding nuclear weapons. So I, I just say, and as I've echoed today in the, the dispatches newsletter that's going to come out in, in about four or five hours time, um, please sign up. Uh, I just say, look, you, you've just got to be better than this. You know, if you're the president of the United States, it should be no surprise that someone's going to stick a camera in front of you and a microphone. And if you're on stage, well, guess what? We're going to listen to every single word you say. And and you've just got to be better at it. Use language better. Words count. Words matter. This is important stuff at a very dangerous time. I think it's just worth um, reflecting as well about Joe Biden as a foreign policy president. Um, and he's obviously been in the... United States foreign policy space for many decades now. And if you look at his previous uh, 
decisions or suggestions, they have not necessarily been the right ones. Uh, we've got a piece in the paper tomorrow by Robin Renwick, who's the former ambassador to the United States. And his sort of central thesis is that Biden is weak precisely because he thinks he's a foreign policy expert. And if you look at Afghanistan and the chaotic withdrawal <clears throat> only a few months ago, if you look at the fact that President Biden, when he was the vice president, was one of the very, very few who advised President Obama not to um, uh, seek to um, capture or assassinate um, Osama bin Laden. These are uh, he's not got a good track record. And clearly uh, this latest gaffe or, or, or misspeak, um, whichever you want to use, is, is yet another that can be chalked up to that. However true it may be. To Dom's point, if you're president of the United States, these things really, really matter and can be used by your enemies against you. And as I say, that is now what is going to be happening in Russia. That They will be repeating this line and say, if you don't support uh, President Putin's uh, war in Ukraine, then you are uh, effectively pro an America that wants to see a regime change that wants to see Putin removed from power and that ultimately wants to destabilise and arguably destroy Russia. Now, we know that's not true. We know that uh, that would be propaganda. But that is what your enemy can use. And as uh, as I say, to Dom's point, uh, there's the, the line during the war that careless talk costs lives. It was one of the famous wartime posters here in Britain. And I think you could say that, 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 there's, there's a, that this is a further example of that, albeit in a different space. Could I just ask, do we have much sense of how this has gone down in, in the US? What's been the reaction of political elites and, and the public? Um, I, from what I've seen, I think that you've got the, the, the Republican wing who obviously have been very critical and continue to be critical of President Biden um, and, and, and look to uh, the, 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 these kind of gaffes uh, as being yet further example of Sleepy Joe to, uh, to, 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 to quote Donald Trump. Um, uh, so, but uh, there's been a sort of notable silence, I think, on the Democratic wing uh, in terms of criticising Biden, um, because he's sometimes, I think, seen as the man who can do no wrong. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is that they are still very aware that, that Trump is in the wings, perhaps for a future um, presidential uh, election and or, or you know, a, a resurgent Republican Party. They know that he is a very unpopular president at home and he's got also a very unpopular vice president. And so there's this this sort of rallying around uh, Biden, which um, I would certainly I don't think have happened if uh, Donald Trump was still in power, because they fear that, uh, that, that that what could happen as a consequence of that. But, you know, the Russia, the, the, the American people, I think, will, will, will very clearly see that this is a that this is a misstep if they're following it perhaps as closely as we are. And I think that's another important point to to underline is I think that the, this is not as big a story in America, uh, the Ukraine crisis, as it is here in Europe for obvious reasons. Um, but there is, of course, a problem with that when you've got America still being the leader of the free world. You want them to be as closely engaged in Europe as they were in the Cold War. And they are arguably currently not. Um, but whether that will shift over the coming years ahead, if we are in Cold War Two as 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 has um, been we've already described uh, uh, this as possibly being then we, we would hope to see that shift in the, in the months ahead Olivia and Dom I don't know if either of you want to come in on that well I've seen a bit of a comment from the uh, American uh, right wing uh, Mark Hurtling for example saying saying that it's um, 
well, he, 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 he tweeted, I'm looking at it now, saying uh, uh, whether or not it was an emotional ad lib or a gaffe, it may not be presidential language, but it was something he needed to say. And said Putin's a combination of Milosevic, Ceausescu, and yes, Hitler. It's a message to Europe and Moscow. So it's kind of, it's given that that wing of the debate a, um, a breath of life. Um, no, I mean, you, you know, take, pay your money, take your choice. I, I think that's unhelpful to, um, to, to let those ideas run too, too far. Um, but uh, you know, others clearly disagree, which I have no no problem with at all. But but it certainly has allowed these these ideas um, that that people say yes, it, it was a gaffe, but you know, we, it needed to be said. Um, I'm not sure it did need to be said. I think most people who who are intelligent consumers of information have, have read the papers, watched the watched the news, and and can see what's going on. Um, I, I think this was well, we know it's off off the cuff, off script, unscripted remarks. Um, but it has been a gift to Putin, and why would you want to do that? Yeah, I think I think it's sort of interesting the extent to which Biden's gaffe seemed to be priced in in America. I mean, of course, it's very true that the war in Ukraine generally isn't quite as much of a topic in America as it is over here. But the extent to which this hasn't really been picked up on, there are the Republicans and anti-Biden people who are saying exactly what you'd expect them to say, but no one seems to be shocked, and that's because. He does do it quite a lot. People are just kind of used to it. And they've kind of accepted that, that that's the president that they've got, which which I think is quite sort of damaging in itself. Because, you know, if there's not a big reaction to this, which which obviously is a gift to Putin, um, then then how far can he go? How how many how many off the cuff uh bizarre remarks can can he make um before anyone around him actually properly challenges him it, it's worryingly priced in i think just to olivia's point there's, there's there's a broader question here which is that is america weaker under president biden on the world stage uh, than it is it was under president trump and in previous administrations I think a lot of commentators have, have, have argued that it is weaker, and I think some of the reasons for that um, are obvious. Um, obviously, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which I've already mentioned, uh, was terrible optics. It's uh, not only in terms of the horrific suffering endured by those who were left behind, um, and we've already seen um, what's been happening to women in that country, but also the message it sent in terms of Western uh, American values towards the rest of the world that essentially uh, is wanting to be more isolationist, not to have forever wars, which was a phrase actually used by President Biden. And this is a gift, an absolute gift to um, to opponents of the Western worldview, um, because not only does it you know, make clear what the Western policy is, but also it's being articulated aloud. And it's a point I know we've made before, but uh, you shouldn't be when you're in a position, particularly when it involves in military and foreign policy affairs, of always articulating exactly what you are going to do and how you are going to behave. That plays into your enemy's hands. And yet President Biden has an awful habit of doing just that because he says... Uh, what he's, you know, for example, on Ukraine, he said uh, that, that that we will not intervene and risk war with Russia. Well, why do you need to tell the Russians that? That under no circumstances will you intervene. It just gives them a blank check to commit the kind of atrocities that we've that we've seen. Um, but as I say, we, to the broader point of, of of American foreign policy strength under Biden, I don't believe genuinely. I, I don't believe that this would have occurred under President Trump. And I say it for the simple reason that President Trump was extremely un predictable, that he would be swung this way and that by what people were saying in America, what the latest piece of news that he'd 
seen on Fox News. And, and, and it's, it's, it's dangerous when you've got somebody who is, who is unpredictable. It means you are not sure how they're going to react. And it means that you're less likely to take risks. And I think Vladimir Putin would have thought, I, I, I cannot risk there being some sort of escalation here, um, which involves American troops, because I know I will lose. And I think he probably saw the withdrawal Af- in Afghanistan of, um, uh, in the weeks prior to, to him seriously considering the invasion in Ukraine and thought, well, I can say with confidence that, that the Americans will not intervene min- militarily. Now, of course, he has made some other miscalculations about the scale in which the West has been united by this. We obviously saw the, um, 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 the, the NATO summit last week. But even so, he has been right in that assumption that America would not intervene militarily and, and introduce a new no-fly zone. And that's, um, as I say, it's played into, into his hands. So my own feeling is that, yes, America is diminished, unfortunately, and that a future president um, will have to try um, and, and really reassert the fight for freedom um, on the international stage that a president like Ronald Reagan articulated so vividly. There needs to be somebody who is making those kind of speeches that many of people would have seen Arnold Schwarzenegger making only a couple of weeks ago, articulating what freedom means and then doing so in a really effective way. Because at the moment, it feels like the, the West is, is being led, in a sense, by Vladimir Zelensky. And there's good reasons for that, but it should really be coming from the President of the United States and the leader of the free world. And we're not there, and we should be. Thank you very much, Francis. Um, just before we, we wrap up and we look to the week ahead... Dom, I know you mentioned you had some some further analysis on some of the things uh, happening in Ukraine. Do you want to talk us through it? Yeah, well, uh, not so much uh, in Ukraine, but just around, around the edges. And we've, we've spoken before about um, uh, Putin's, one of the reasons he suggests he, he went into this, because he, he didn't want more NATO on his borders. And, and of course, that's exactly what he's, what he's got. But beyond that, we've spoken before about um, the positions of countries like Sweden and Finland, who are very are, are close to uh, to NATO um, joint exercises and what have you, but but you know have, have resolutely stayed outside, um, and uh, and we've we've questioned you know, is this is this enough to make them to make them want to join? Um, a couple of weeks ago, in fact, two days I can remember exactly two days before the war started on the Tuesday, I um, I was at, at an event where I was chatting to the Swedish defence minister Peter Hultqvist, and I was asking him about about you know, the old the old canard of uh, when Sweden going to join going to join NATO and he said oh Craig you know we don't, we don't need to go around that boy again he said we're basically so close we've got so many bilateral ties um, that uh, that we're, we're kind of a part of it of it anyway and I thought well no you're not mate I mean you know there's, there's a big old article five elephant in the room but but apart from that you know de- delighted to, to chat minister and then I just saw this morning um, Francis Tusa the defense uh, defense journalist uh, he tweeted uh, from a from a flight tracking site Saying that there's a there was a, a Swedish Gulfstream Four SIGIN signals intelligence platform doing some racetrack circuits up and down the Polish border, clearly having a nice uh, a look at what's going on and good look at Kaliningrad as well, and it was it was almost in lockstep with a, a US rivet joint again another signals intelligence platform an RC135 rivet joint, and they were uh, all bit, about five or six thousand feet apart in in altitude, but they were they were pretty close and doing identical racetrack circuits. These things don't happen by accident. They weren't just in the same area. It's all Polish airspace. Clearly, um, they were they were obviously deconflicting with each other, making sure there were no no nobody got too close, and, and it, there was there wasn't a, you know an aviation safety um, incident. But I, it almost certainly goes beyond that, and there must have been s- some kind of, if not intelligence sharing, but then in, in sorting out who's going to who's going to look at what and at some level, some military cooperation. So just I just thought that was interesting about the position of countries like Sweden and Finland and where they are regarding the threat from uh, from Russia, what's going on in Ukraine and their relationship and, and interaction with 
NATO. Um, so yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. You can have a look back at have a look at Francis's feed. He's always he's always a good guy to uh, to keep an eye on. Thank you very much, Tom. Um, I think we've probably come to the end of our time together. Olivia, Francis, and Tom, can I get your final thoughts? What's really struck you about this conversation, and what should we be looking for in the weeks ahead? I think I would just make a comment on the morale of the Russian soldiery. Uh, I mean, imagine for a moment that you are a Russian conscript that has was sold a war and that you would be liberating a country full of Nazis and that you'd be treated as liberators. Then your tanks or your, you know, or, or your munitions rolls in and you face the kind of resistance they, they did in those early hours and, and early days. And you're now outside Kiev. It's bitterly cold. You're not prepared for uh, the, the, the fight that you've received. Morale is already low. And then at the end of last week, your leader says that the fight for Kiev is, is effectively redundant and that the shift will be more now more towards the east. Imagine how you would feel. And I think that this is a, a question that we, as Dom has obviously been, been talking about every day um, since his podcast uh, began, that the, the, the Russian army is not in a good place and it is arguably already past the point where it would ever be able to achieve its fundamental objectives in Ukraine. So my final question, or really or thinking ahead, is, is what if, if, if the Russian army is truly on its last legs, as some commentators have made, what does that mean uh, for the peace talks that are taking, taking place? And what does that mean for Putin as well? Because if, 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 if the Russian army really does collapse, and this is an absolute victory for the Ukrainians, which would be an absolutely remarkable achievement, then that has huge ramifications for both the peace talks and for Putin's presidency. And so if that is a likelihood, I'd just say that it's something that we're going to need to, re- to, to return to on a future podcast. Very, very quickly, I'd be really interested to hear from NATO. I can see there's some NATO officials uh, listening into this. So please do get in touch. Really interested in the position NATO is in at the moment, not only about military support and um, you know, we talked about the tanks earlier on and other other equipment, but at what point these become bilateral deals um, or, is, or is it NATO? Um, uh, plus, I just mentioned Sweden, but the relationship with, with other, other interested parties um, and the Secretary General has just been extended in post for a year from, from I think, this, this autumn to next summer or, or thereabouts. So to tide us over for this, this current crisis, hopefully tide us over this current crisis, but deemed not the best time to um, to move Secretary General. So so I'd, I'd really be interested to, to hear uh, after the after the NATO um, meeting last week, a, a sort of view on, on some of these areas. But uh, that's one for another time. But but. Uh, any NATO officials listening in, I'd love to uh, love to get in touch with you. Um, I don't think the Biden row is over yet. The, the response from Peskov, who's um, a Russian spokesperson, was this speech in the pa- passages which concern Russia is astounding, to use polite words. He uh, doesn't understand that the world is not limited to the United States and most of Europe. Um, they said they're going to watch very closely what Biden says in the weeks ahead. So Russia's clearly, you know, Biden has has poked the bear very clearly um and whether whether the kremlin will just let this slide um will be very interesting to see and and if it feels a little bit as though biden is um is is being is being watched even even more closely now and we know that pretty much every time he makes a speech he does come out with some with some slightly odd um remark if not a gaffe so 
what how that relationship develops uh, and what the fallout will be, I think we haven't yet seen the last of it, and it'll be interesting to see what happens in the in the days and weeks ahead. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you found this show helpful... Follow Ukraine, the latest on your podcast app. And if there's something we could do to make it even more useful, do let us know. You can email podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. Ukraine, the latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Sophie Coe.